Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to episode 49 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. We'll kind of get right to the point today. On Saturday, February 25th, 2023, Warren Buffett published his annual letter to shareholders for his company, Berkshire Hathaway. It's always a great letter. Warren Buffett is an excellent writer and there's always a lot to learn. Uh, Not all of it is nitty gritty investing stuff. A lot of it is just general education that we can apply to many different areas of our life, one of which is personal finance and investing. And one of my friends here in Rochester, his name's Rob Bradley. He's a certified financial planner, CFP. He and I have talked before a lot about Warren Buffett because we both happen to be Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Rob, in fact, has even visited Omaha before during the shareholders meeting and seen Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger speak live, which I think is really cool. What we decided to do for today's episode is we both read through the, the letter when it was published on Saturday, the 25th. As I speak to you right now, it's Sunday, the 26th. And we're sitting down on Sunday afternoon and we're just gonna have a conversation about the letter. Some of the interesting things that Warren Buffett wrote and some of the helpful takeaways that we're walking away with lessons learned. Because I figure if it's stuff that Rob and I have learned, maybe there'll be some interesting things for you guys, for you listeners to learn as well. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Rob, how you doing? Jesse, doing well. You know, it's fun coming in on a Sunday and, and of all things, talking about Berkshire Hathaway, something we both very much enjoy. How, how long have you been a, a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder? Great question. So directly for just a little bit under a decade, wish I had invested sooner and longer ago, but just under 10 years. Okay. Okay. I'm probably at a year, maybe a year and a half myself. Okay. It was, I think it was last. It was probably starting 12 or 15 months ago. I got into some Berkshire shareholders YouTube videos while I was running. Because if I listen to music when I run, it kind of amps me up too much. Sure. And I get tired. Okay. I'm going for like a long, slow run. Mm-hmm. Listening to Warren and Charlie is actually a great way to pass the time, learn something, and not get myself too amped up. Okay. So yesterday we had the shareholders letter get published. If you listeners, we'll we'll throw a link in the show notes so you guys can download the PDF and read it yourself. It's only about 10 pages, so it's a pretty quick read. Yep. I mean, I'll just just throw it over to you, Rob. I certainly have some of my notes, but let's just start talking through some of the notes that we took. I see you took some notes even on the very first page, which shows Berkshire Hathaway's returns over time. What What are your thoughts on that page? So the first page of the annual shareholder letter, it's always the same first page. It's Berkshire Hathaway's performance versus the S&P 500 compounded and going back to 1965, showing year by year in a very simple format. It shows through year-end 2022 that the compounded annual gain was annualized at 19.8% per year Mm -hmm. for well over 50 years. The S&P 500 over that same time period is 9.9%. So the reason that I highlighted certain areas of those annual returns is that what Warren Buffett would tell you and has very often proclaimed is that that advantage of performance double the S&P on a long-term basis is not one that's sustainable at all. And that track record, though, it's been great over shorter time periods as well. It's heavily skewed by the returns in the early years. So, for example, in 1965, Berkshire was up 49.5% versus 10 for the S&P. Hmm. So a huge edge. Three years later, it was up 78% versus the S&P's 11. A few years later, this is in 1969 or 70, it was up 80% versus 14.6 for the S&P 500. So the important point to take from that is that those huge returns and huge return advantages over the S&P 500 occurred when Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio of assets was very, very 
small. And so because of that, a few investment decisions that were relatively small in size could have had a huge return advantage over the S&P. And those results, of course, now have compounded over another 50 years. So they're not repeatable or sustainable. No investor should expect to double the S&P 500's return if they owned shares of Berkshire Hathaway. Right. And Warren, Warren and Charlie have talked about that before at the shareholders meetings where, you know, mm-hmm. in a hypothetical scenario, if you were to give them a million dollars and say, go buy a million dollar company and try to get as big a return on it as possible, they might be able to find a way to return 50% on that million dollars Absolutely. in a year. But if you told them, here's a billion or 10 billion yeah. or more, which those are kind of the quantities that they're working with these days when it comes to buying a new company or, or investing in a new stock. It's harder to get that big of a return on that big of a dollar amount. That's exactly right. So as a matter of fact, what they would say is they have a hard time finding things to buy because anything that they would buy that would be a meaningful investment would have to be so massive in order to move the needle or even be worthwhile for for Berkshire as an entity to invest in. There are relatively limited opportunities. So, you know, I, I would be one of in the camp that it is reasonable and very possible that Berkshire will continue to outperform the S&P 500 by a modest margin on a go-forward basis, certainly because it's a single company. It could also underperform. If it does outperform, it will not be anywhere near the historical magnitude of what is really stunning long-term outperformance, double the S&P 500 but not just for a year or three years or five years. You know, this is over 58 years. It's a stunning track record that they would be the first to tell you will not be repeatable. But that doesn't mean that it won't still be good. Right, right. I like it. I like it. Let's get into some of the actual uh, text of the letter. Yeah. Because it's always interesting how how Warren writes, you know, we were talking before the recording, how some of it's kind of folksy wisdom. Yeah. He doesn't really get into too much of the nitty-gritty investing, accounting, kind of math type details that might lose people. Instead, he keeps it pretty high level, at least at this part of the letter. So maybe we can just go through kind of almost page by page and we'll pause, stop, talk when either one of us took notes on on a particular thought. Sure, let's do it. So I know up front, you wrote a note about this beforehand, Rob, about how Warren writes to his investors almost the way that a financial advisor writes to their clients in terms of the the thought and the care that Warren has for his investors' money and and, and the way he he tries to, you know, he goes, Charlie and I watch with pleasure the vast flow of Berkshire-generated funds sent to public needs and the the infrequency with which our shareholders opt for look-at-me assets and dynasty building. I mean, in this case, he was saying so many of Berkshire's investors who do have millions, tens, hundreds of millions of Berkshire dollars choose to donate a lot of that money to charity in the same way that maybe a, an advisor might help their clients set up like a donor advised fund or, yep. or something along those lines. Yep. He speaks very much with the voice of your friend and trusted advisor that is stewarding your capital and helping make decisions for your own investment portfolio. And the really unique thing about the culture of Berkshire Hathaway is that is exactly how they look at how they run that company. And I think it starts with their roots. So when Warren Buffett started in the investment business, he was a private. He was like a fund manager he, almost. He, he, he was a private money manager. Yeah. He started a partnership. Then after many years and much success of essentially managing money for friends and family and getting tired of the K-1 and some of the tax complexities Then also in the late 60s, or excuse me, the late 50s, early 60s, when he saw the stock market as being relatively overvalued, he actually closed that first what was called the Buffett Partnership and redistributed all the money back to shareholders because he didn't find anything that he thought was a great investment at that point. This is when the, you know, the the nifty 50 stocks of the 60s and 70s were really starting to stretch valuations. But he's always approached what he does with that care of someone that's stewarding capital for their own friends and family. And a lot of his shareholders are still those people, but he also recognizes that many of those shareholders have a large portion of their net worth in Berkshire. They've implicitly trusted 
Berkshire with much or most of their life savings, and he takes his approach very personally and seriously that way. Right. He talks a lot about his sister, maybe sisters, who I think at this yeah. point, at least one of them might have recently died in the last couple of years, but right. they had a lot of their money with Warren or in Berkshire Hathaway. And when he writes this letter, he thinks to himself he's writing to his sisters yeah. in a way that they're, they're bright people, but they don't really understand how businesses run. They don't understand the underlying complexity of what's going on. So he writes to a level that they can appreciate and learn and follow along and helps me out. You know, I, I'm sure maybe I could understand some of the complex stuff, but writing in a way that people understand is a pretty nice thing to do. Yeah, I think it may be Einstein who said, if you can't explain something very simply, then you don't really understand right. it. Right. And that's the approach that he takes to investing. Now, this is a little bit, I shouldn't say it's a little bit, it's a lot sexist. But the way he said it is, you know, if I can't explain an investment to my sister now, of course, as you said, his sisters are very bright people, brilliant even. They just don't play or understand investment markets or focus their intelligence right. in that area. Right. But he's, he's often said, if I can't explain it to my sister, then I shouldn't invest in it. No, that's a good thought. I like this one, Rob, on, on page two. Charlie and I are not stock pickers. We are business pickers. I mean, that's something that you and I being kind of followers, acolytes of Warren Buffett, we've yeah. heard him say something like that a lot, but maybe someone listening to this podcast hasn't really heard, doesn't really understand the nuance difference. I mean, when you read Warren Buffett say that, Charlie and I are not stock pickers, we are business pickers. What do you think? Well, I think that he is looking to invest in businesses that he understands, and he's not looking for a hot, popular stock or a company that people start talking about at a cocktail party because it's the bright new shiny thing or maybe the Tesla from five or seven years ago. He's really looking at the way he invests as being a partner to take an ownership stake in a portion of a business versus a short-term trader or someone that's investing in something that's doing well, i.e. a stock that maybe they really don't understand. Yeah. One of his other related quotes is most investors would do better if the stock market was open once every five years or something along those lines, right? Because yeah. maybe the average young stock picker who was trying to make some quick money during COVID, right? They might have been trading on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And that is the antithesis of what Warren Buffett sure, does. They're sure. thinking years, decades in advance. Yeah. By, you know, their favorite holding period is forever. Right. Right. So kind of the anti Robin Hood effect approach, if you will, whereas, you know, many new investors that were young enough to never have experienced some of the pain of the great financial crisis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. jumped into the markets in their 20s for the first time over the last, say, three years, maybe from the start of COVID or a little bit sooner before that. And the really approach was buy something that's going up. You know, there's a meme stock. Everyone's talking about it. Let's throw $1,000 into that and see what happens. So, you know, that would be the definition of chasing a hot dot and speculating, you know, whereas he, of course, is defining investing as something very differently and more like being a partner in a business that you'd be happy to own a portion of. And if you couldn't sell it for five years or more, that wouldn't distress you at all because that's how... You're looking at your investing time frame, but also your commitment to what you're putting your money in versus that of a, a trader. Right. And he goes on to write, the one advantage of our publicly traded segment is that episodically, it becomes easy to buy pieces of wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. It's crucial to understand that stocks often trade at truly foolish prices, both high and low. Efficient markets exist only in textbooks. Mm. You know, we don't have to go into too much of the, of the professional side of what we do, but the efficient market hypothesis for those listeners who are unaware states to some extent that the stock market finds the price of a stock more accurately than you might be able to do on your own. And therefore, you, could, you should trust the stock market's pricing, essentially, is, yeah. is what the efficient market hy yeah, hypothesis it's, says. It's the wisdom of the crowd. Right. If exactly. there's known information about Apple... Everyone knows it. It's followed by hundreds of thousands of analysts and investors, if not more, around the world. And everything that's publicly known about that company on a given day is reflected in what the current share price is. Right, exactly. 
And I think also common sense would tell anyone that while long-term markets may operate efficiently, they're subject to pretty extreme short-term swings of emotions, animal spirits of Mm -hmm. investors, Mm -hmm. news headlines, and the cumulative gain from the COVID trough, let's say to a 2021 peak on the S&P 500 was, boy, that was close to a 100% gain, let's say. Mm -hmm. Don't have that number in front of me, but no one would argue that the size of the economy increased 100% over that time period or its future growth or earnings potential increased 100%. It was just valued very lowly in 2020 because the amount of uncertainty that was present in the world and valued much, much more optimistically about two years later, though also in a very important backdrop where essentially interest rates went to zero. So there were no other good alternatives to to place money. But he recognizes that those swings are going to occur and prices are going to be irrationally high at times. They're going to be irrationally low at times. Right. And and you can, you know, it's that old parable of Mr. Market that Benjamin Graham liked so much is is you don't have to do business with someone who's being irrational, right? And if, if the stock market is irrationally high, you don't necessarily, you don't have to buy at irrationally high prices. If the stock market's irrationally low, you don't have to sell. In fact, what Benjamin Graham would say is you, you should try to do the opposite. You should try to, you know, take advantage of the market's irrationality, which is, is something that, you know, Warren and Charlie clearly have done a few times over their careers. We were talking earlier, Rob, about the great financial crisis, 2008, where I'm not sure if all these deals were necessarily on the public markets. Some of them might have occurred behind closed doors. Oh, sure they did. But some some of the investments that Berkshire Hathaway made in 2008, 2009 were essentially large financial institutions, Goldman Sachs, you know, Bank of America. They they had no other option but to accept money from Berkshire Hathaway. Yep. And Warren Buffett knew the leverage that he had on them and was able to negotiate very beneficial terms for Berkshire. He was presented with fantastic investing opportunities because of the amount of capital that he had in liquid cash and short-term treasuries that simply was not available elsewhere unless it was from the Federal Reserve. Mm. So back in those days, the Federal Reserve was grappling with what is too big to fail. What do we do with Lehman after Bear Stearns? And do we let a Morgan Stanley, do we let a Goldman Sachs circle down the drain? Well, the Federal Reserve didn't have to step into the capital structure of those investment banks because they were able to obtain emergency funding from Berkshire Hathaway in the form of warrants and preferred securities that were offered to him at stunning prices. I, again, I, we were talking earlier, I think he was offered Goldman Preferreds at 9% with a conversion privilege to common equity as well. So he was going to get 9% one way or the other. And if the common stock did great, he could then also choose to convert those into common shares, right. which, which he ultimately did and then sold. And he still owns a large stake in Bank of America from that. So the point is just that because of who he is and his position in the financial world and his liquidity, Berkshire was presented with investment opportunities that individuals just would not have had the volume Mm -hmm. um, or the opportunity to to put their money into. Right. And and there's a good lesson just in that very last sentence you said, Rob, which is that when you happen to be the person who's running a multi-hundred billion dollar business and you do have billions and billions of cash and treasury bonds sitting in your bank account, quote unquote, bank account, right? You will be presented with opportunities that you and I sitting here will never be presented with, right? You know, no one on Wall Street was calling Jesse Kramer or Rob Bradley in 2008 saying, will you please help us bail out Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. So, So Warren has kind of positioned himself simply as a function of the size of Berkshire Hathaway, the way that it's compounded over yeah. the last 60 years yeah. in just a completely unique way that you and I, or the average listener, will we'll never experience, right. but it's, it's been pretty beneficial for shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're a unique entity in the financial world in that they have the type of cash liquidity that no one other than a central banker can match mm-hmm. and are interested in being opportunistic at the, the, the right time. 
Right. And, and I'm skipping ahead to something that Warren wrote at the end of the letter where he goes, you know, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, whether it's him as it is right now or whoever it may be in the future, is the chief risk officer. And one thing I've always loved about the way Warren and Charlie approach business is their view of risk management aligns very much with the way I think. And I, I think it's the way that, that a lot of common folks think about risk management, about, you know, one of Warren's famous quotes is, why risk something that you have and need for something that you don't have and don't need? It's a great question. And, yeah. you know, a perfect example is if you have $10 million, let's say, and that's all you need for the rest of your life, why would you put any of that at risk? You have it right now sure. and you need it. Sure. And, and so a lot of businesses would look at Berkshire's $100 billion in cash and treasury bonds and say like, oh, that's such that's just cash that's not doing anything waste for you. Waste opportunity costs. Yeah, exactly. let's lever this thing up and go. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just so interesting that Warren and Charlie said, no, we're not going to risk the entity that is Berkshire Hathaway just to chase some extra gains with this cash. They like having that cash as a, a safety net. Right. And another one of his quotables is we've made far more money by avoiding dragons than slaying them. Interesting. I haven't heard that one. So, I like so, that. So they are definitely looking at the investing world from almost a money ball type of perspective where they don't feel that they need to take home run swings and hit home runs when they can be very consistent and very patient with a high batting average and drawing a lot of walks and hitting singles over time. Right, right. It's a good lesson to apply to, uh, doesn't have to just be an investing lesson there, right? I mean, you can apply it to other parts of your life too. I mean, I think about diet and fitness is something I, I write about sometimes on the blog where a very simple kind of singles and doubles type diet and exercise routine is infinitely better than the idea of hitting home runs. I mean, yeah, I, guess sure. I, I don't know what a hitting home run diet and exercise routine would be, but As it's like, you know, for four hours a day. So you work right. out for four hours a day and then you're so physically and emotionally exhausted right. and your wife and kids are angry at the time commitment after two or three days. You're never going to do it again. Whereas right. the person that maybe works out for 20 to 30 minutes a day, but is absolutely consistent and religious and is saying, hey, I'm willing to do this a thousand times. Right. Will end up in a far better uh, end result than the extremist that tries to get it all done in a day or another great way that Warren has said it. And he has so many wonderful turns of phrase. I think I actually have it written here with some of my favorite Buffett quotes. Successful investing takes time, discipline, and patience. No matter how great the talent or effort, some things just take time. You can't produce a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. That's Warren's quote, not yep, mine. Yep. Uh, I, don't, I don't recommend that approach to anything, but that just he has a wonderful way of making that common sense lesson of time and patience really mm -hmm. hit home. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I know, you know, a lot of the listeners, a lot of the folks who will end up listening to this conversation, Rob, are, they might be on the younger side of their, either their life or definitely on the younger side of their investing career. And there's a lesson there where it's hard to make up for the way compounding helps you over time. You know, it's, it's been written about before, where if you compared someone who just threw a ton of money at their investment portfolio and then waited five years versus someone who trickled money in steadily but had the patience to wait 50 years. Mm -hmm. The power of that compounding in the long run, it's, it's hard to... Yeah, I mean, I th you know, in today's investing world where much of the information is distributed via social media, you have to remember that people love reporting their winners and they can become very forgetful when it comes to telling you how sel seldomly those winners occurred or framing them with all the losers it took to find one winner. And so, you know, that, that really is the opposite of his approach because he's so focused on fundamentals, time, and patience. When you are focused on fundamentals, time, and patience, you don't need to hit a home run and you don't need to chase a hot dot. You just need to, again, be consistent and mm -hmm. keep hitting single after single, drawing a few walks, and not striking out too many times with right. those home run swings. Right. And he does, you know, he goes on and he writes about a couple, which I don't want to put words in, in Warren's mouth, but it seems like he's treating Coca-Cola and American Express as two, at the very least, extra base hits, if not home runs. 
he admits that most of what Berkshire Hathaway has done over the 60 years has been marginal, mediocre, pretty average. But then when you add in the 10 or so big, big hits, two of which are, are Coca-Cola and American Express, you know, the others might be, um, was it BNSF, the railroad, mm -hmm. uh, the energy companies at BH Energy, mm -hmm. I think is the name. So you add in some companies like that, and then you get home run like performance compounded over over 60 years. Right. So, you know, he would say if you're at worst average in your investment decisions, most all of the time, avoid large mistakes. Every once in a while, you're going to get lucky and have some massive upside variance. So your results over time can still be much, much more than satisfactory. And I would say that the most recent decision without question is the investment in Apple. Mm. So a little bit over 40% as of current estimates of the Berkshire Hathaway securities portfolio, which is contained within Berkshire Hathaway, the publicly traded company, is invested in Apple. That stake was first taken only in 2016, I believe. So he hasn't even invested in Apple for a long time, but has had a massive return just over the last six and a half years that they've been Apple shareholders to the point where now because of that and subsequent investments, it's over 40% of the securities that they own, whereas even Coca-Cola and American Express are closer to the five or 6% right, range. A much smaller share, right? That is interesting, especially, you know, Charlie and, and Warren for a long time, they got some flack for not investing mm -hmm. in, in tech stocks, really, yep. you know, famously. One of Warren's best friends is Bill Gates, but Warren's never invested in Microsoft. That's, right. that's just an example. I'm just curious. I mean, do you, do you have a feel for why they invested in Apple in the first place? I mean, maybe you've heard Warren or Charlie talk about that before. Yeah, I have, and I do. And so they have long stated that they won't invest in anything that they don't understand very well and fully. And that was their attitude towards most all technology companies for really most of the past 30 years since investing in technology companies became more than a mainstream thing. Their decision on Apple revolved around the brand loyalty and them seeing it as an indispensable consumer product and realizing that when someone was in the Apple ecosystem, they tended to stay there. It was very sticky. There was a implied inconvenience switching cost, which no one wants to do when you're in the Apple ecosystem. You don't want to get a Samsung phone. And so they recognize the power of the brand. They recognize the value of subscription services that Apple has slowly been ramping up and understand that company as a consumer product versus a technology stock. And that's why they got really comfortable investing in Apple. But I would also say, I think they got really comfortable investing in Apple because they have a very well planned succession, in my opinion. You're saying Apple has a well-planned succession? No, Berkshire, Berkshire does. does. Okay. Yeah, and that okay. succession is that Warren has had two investment deputies, Todd Combs and Ted Wexler, that have been influencing his decisions on capital allocation, specifically with regards to individual stock purchases. And so it's believed that one of them was actually the first to get him to cross the Rubicon and invest in Apple. Mm. And as he became more aware, saw how Apple itself handled its business and repurchased its own shares, which of course Berkshire always or recently in particular has loved to do, essentially got him on board. And so those two individuals that have now worked with Warren for over 10 years on the investment decisions of Berkshire Hathaway are the succession plan. And so one of the reasons that, you know, when you think about the long-term risk of that company, of course, people wonder what would happen when Warren passes away. He's 92 and still incredibly bright, poised and engaged, but no one beats Father Time or the Reaper. And so he's got two deputies that have been there for succession purposes, but also to, I think, help keep their thinking conservative while being progressive as far as accepting of technology companies. Right. And if you study the Berkshire Hathaway equity portfolio, you'll see Amazon has a role. You'll see 
uh, Snowflake, the cloud services company, and Data Lake company that they have invested in actually before its IPO, Mm. and some other very interesting names that are creeping into the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio, which now has more technology stock exposure thanks to Apple than the S&P 500 as a whole. Wow. That's in- I didn't know that. That's an interesting stat, that final stat you, you just read off, Rob. What's your thought? You mentioned stock buybacks there briefly. And Warren writes about stock buybacks here in the letter. I was just trying to scroll back through and find the exact quote where he mentioned, you know, a silver-tongued demagogue. Ooh, yeah, and, and, very, uh, very testy words from Warren with regards to how the issue of stock buybacks has been politicized and really caused companies that are buying back shares to be villainized as far as extreme capitalists that are, you know, perhaps exploiting their employees and not investing in their own companies, in capital expenditures, maybe in giving better employee pay or raises. So this becomes a very politicized issue. Right. And at the State of the Union, President Biden had said something that Warren, who was a Biden supporter, really bristled at, which is that he wanted to quadruple the corporate excise tax on stock buybacks because he he really, this is Biden, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, implied it was capitalists really exploiting their position instead of doing something that was better for people. Gotcha. And and so, I mean, just taking a step back, let's go really simple with this. A stock buyback. Yeah. If, if I'm Warren Buffett, and let's say I do have $100 billion in the bank, I could choose to buy my own stock that's selling out there on the public market. Mm-hmm. I could buy Berkshire Hathaway stock. And then here's where I get, I just, you know, I'm looking for confirmation on this, Rob. Essentially, I choose to dissolve some of that stock in a way. That's right. And it reduces the total number of shares that are outstanding, which therefore, if you and I are sitting here as shareholders, our percentage ownership of Berkshire Hathaway actually goes up. Just went up. Yeah. Just went up. So it's, but stock buybacks, depending on the price, are usually good for shareholders. Yes. Usually good for the CEO who's executing those buybacks. But I'm spending money that's in the bank that, what Joe Biden would say is you could be spending that money on your employees or some other way in the company rather than just making your shareholders a little bit richer. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so Warren sees share buybacks as a way to concentrate and improve shareholder returns and shareholder value, which they unquestionably are. I would say the, the left side of the political aisle, especially the far left, has really targeted that practice and villainized it in a way that he disagrees with. So here's the quote, and this is pretty strong words. When you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive. So that's a stinging rebuke. And it is pretty clearly directed at President Biden. And this is from someone who is a lifelong and well-known Democrat, that is Warren Buffett, who was a supporter of President Biden, supporter of Hillary Clinton's campaign. This is a well-known Democratic supporter who is, you know, certainly a capitalist, but sees capitalism as not being anti-democratic in its values and right. pretty sharply criticizing the, the the president over his inclusion of share repurchases as being exploitative of the common good. Right. And then uh, Warren does, he describes, you know, an example, uh, he uses an auto dealership as an example where maybe they concentrated ownership through some sort of price share buyback. And then he says, you know, who, who has that transaction harmed? Is, is the manager harmed or favored over passive owners? Has the public been hurt? And essentially his argument is if you do share buybacks in a responsible way, if you ensure that the price is in some way responsible so that no one's getting exploited too much, then it really is kind of a no harm, no foul situation. The shareholders benefit simply from getting a more concentrated ownership stake, but that the public doesn't have to be hurt by it. And so I think that's really what he's getting at as far as 
if someone out there is saying that all share buybacks are bad, then that's that's painting with too broad of a brush. Way too broad of a brush. Yeah, I think he feels that it's been lumped in with issuing huge amounts of stock options to CEOs mm-hmm. for excessive corporate executive compensation. And the gap between the average CEO compensation and the average employee. I think he's right in that that is a practice that, you know, should not be villainized. Right. So, Rob, I want to know what your thoughts are. There's a section here on page seven where he talks about our journey to 2023, a bumpy road involving a combination of continuous savings by our owners, that is by Berkshire retaining earnings, power of compounding, our avoidance of major mistakes. We already touched on that one. But most important of all, according to Warren Buffett, is that Berkshire Hathaway benefited from the American tailwind. Mm, the American um, tailwind. Right. Yeah. America would have done fine without Berkshire, but the reverse is not true. So I'm, I'm curious from, a, from an investing point of view. I mean, I, in my work, I always talk about, oh, the S&P 500 historically has returned 10% per year. But that statistic itself, Berkshire Hathaway's success, it all falls within the shadow of this is the American stock market, the American economy, the American tailwind. And is that tailwind going to exist moving forward? If so, how strong might it be? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on international diversification. And not necessarily for Berkshire Hathaway, but just kind of in general as, a, as an investing concept. Yeah, well, let me start by sharing why I think that Warren's opinion of it is what it is. He certainly likes investing in things that he intimately understands and wants boots on the ground familiarity with everything that he invests in and allocates capital to. So that's certainly one of the reasons for his very, very strong domestic bias. This is a common theme that he hits on going back to the great financial crisis where in the fall of 2008, he published a letter in the Wall Street Journal that was titled, By American, Mm -hmm. I Am. And, you know, he believes in the ingenuity of the American spirit. He believes in the business-friendly environment in the United States, which does have some business-friendly advantages that even major developed economies around the world don't. Could you share with me, for example, Jesse, who the uh, Australian equivalent of Amazon is? Or is there an Apple that was born in Germany? Or perhaps you found a Netflix in Great Britain. The reality is those companies in the comparables, they simply are not there. Mm -hmm. Warren takes that to an extreme in investing almost exclusively domestically, almost exclusively. At another point in our conversation, we should talk about his divestiture of Taiwan Semiconductor stock, Mm, which is a very interesting move. But... Yeah, he clearly believes that there's a advantage to U.S. companies and the U.S. business spirit and the U.S. free market system that even most other developed economies and democracies don't enjoy. And when you think about that question that I just mentioned, why isn't there a Microsoft that was started in South America? And then ask yourself the next question about why isn't there an alphabet that came from Europe? It is interesting that so many huge, world-changing new businesses and technology companies have only been birthed in the United States. Now, as far as the broader perspective for most investors, having international diversification of significant proportion, anywhere from 30 to 40% of their equity exposure is prudent. And for one reason among several is because of currency exposure. If the United States went through a period where its currency was depreciating against those around the world, international non-currency hedged investments would be one of the only ways to protect against a risk like that. Mm. So without getting into some of the political extremism and the thought about the U.S. debt ceiling ceiling, and, and default issues that we are really facing in 2023... I would say there are many reasons that international diversification of meaningful amount is prudent for any investor, though, again, Warren likes really, really concentrated bets, and he's chosen America as essentially his one and only. Right, right. It's funny how I think investors all over the world, I was reading a paper a few months ago 
almost all investors in the world have some sort of home country bias. Home bias. Yeah. yeah, everyone yeah. does. You know, if you look at like the average German's stock portfolio, there's a lot of German stocks in there that you and I have probably never heard of. We just happen. Warren just so happens. We, we've got lucky with, with the ovarian lottery and that we were born in a place where our home country bias is the best home country bias to have had over the past century. Right. And of course, there are many charts out there that will show you almost never is the broad U.S. stock market the best performing market in the world just by law of large numbers. That mm-hmm. doesn't happen mm-hmm. uh, very often. But over long periods of time, it's produced excellent returns and certainly some unique companies that you cannot say they're peers of in an international stock index. Right. And that that stat of America's rarely number one, but we're somewhere in the middle, you know, I don't know, maybe the third quartile where we're usually above average and, and pretty solid it reminds me of Howard Marks. And a couple of things you said earlier reminded me of Howard Marks and his investment philosophy, if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. But one of his major philosophies, it's similar in a lot of ways to Buffett, is I don't need to be first, but I refuse to be last. And if I can just be average most of the time, maybe slightly above average, really work hard to avoid catastrophic losses, then in the long run, a lot of the competition is going to fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And in the long run, my performance is going to be way above average simply because I avoided anything that was, was too bad. And I think if you were to look at, say, the American stock market over the last 50 years, I bet that's what you would see. It certainly has been better than average, but in very few years has it been the best returning market. Right, right, exactly. One thing that might be fun to remind listeners is that I didn't print it, but if they look in the annual report, they can actually email questions to Becky Quick of CNBC. Oh, yeah for consideration to be asked to Warren and Charlie at the shareholder meeting in Omaha in May. Cool. So I, I, I actually think that both you and I should submit a question over email and see if we can throw our hat into that lottery. Yeah. Because I th- <laughs> I've always thought it would be very cool to have a question asked at the shareholder meeting. When I was there last year, I did try so you have to enter a lottery at one of about 10 or 11 microphone locations. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I entered the lottery. I did not get picked. Four people from my section of the basketball arena mm-hmm. where the shareholder meeting is held did get picked, but they talked for so long. Only one of them actually got to ask their question. Uh, so I was kind of glad I didn't get that's picked. a bummer. Yeah. Because I would have been nervous sitting there for like five or six hours just hoping that I wouldn't stumble, fumble, or lose poise on the mic, yeah. right? Because, yeah. you know, I'm fairly poised in front of a mic, but sure. that's still a big a stage big mic. to be yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, when you're literally addressing an investing legend with a live question that's being listened to by probably hundreds of thousands of people listen to that, sure, they're meeting around yeah. the world. Yeah. But that would be interesting to submit a question. And I think that the perspective on what's happening with China and why they reduced a recent and fairly meaningful investment in Taiwan Semiconductor, ticker symbol TSM, the largest chip manufacturer outside of the United States, I believe, that they had just bought in the third quarter of 2022. Hmm. They cut it by 86% in the fourth quarter of 2022. Huh. So he will probably be very reticent to tell you exactly what he really thinks, but certainly there's a lot of risk about Taiwan and the Chinese invasion. Eerie political tension that has been heightening so terribly with China for right. the past few years. Right. You know, when we really think about China over the last 20 years, they've been our friend, a huge supplier. Mm-hmm. So many U.S. Mm-hmm. companies, right? Trading partners. They huge make trading partners. They also make so many components for Apple. Does that cause him concern about his huge investment in Apple? That much of their manufacturing is located in China. Very interesting questions, right? That's a really good point. It's so far today we've been talking about all the things that we have seen here in the shareholders' letter, which there's a lot of good things to see. But yeah, that's a very conspicuous absence. And especially one would think if this is the, right, this is the roundup of 2022. Why wasn't that part of the letter? Hopefully, yeah. hopefully he does expand on that in, in May. There were a few things that he could have commented on. So he didn't comment at all on the collapse of 
FTX and various aspects of cryptocurrency. Though several years ago, he went on record as saying that he thought Bitcoin, I believe the direct verbiage he used was, it's probably rat poison squared. <laughs> probably. Yes, he did put a qualifier <laughs> yeah, in there. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't say anything about the unraveling of, of many different aspects of crypto. He didn't talk about inflation barely at all in the mm, letter. Mm -hmm. And he didn't talk about systematically higher interest rates. Though you know, he is gleefully rubbing his hands together because his cash pile that a few years ago was earning zero to 1% is now earning four to maybe five and a half percent, which by itself is probably four or five billion dollars of free spending money, of course, to Warren, that means investing money right. to Berkshire Hathaway every year going forward, as long as, as short-term interest rates stay elevated like that. So I was a little surprised he didn't say anything about higher interest rates. Yeah. I mean, just that was the prevailing economic story of 2022. And I know Warren and Charlie, they at times will say, we don't really make decisions based on macroeconomic. We don't make macroeconomic predictions. No. They don't really care about macroeconomic policy that much. They much rather would talk about individual businesses sure. and how they're run. But at the same time, Warren has said before, interest rates are to financial instruments as gravity, gravity. is to matter. Gravity. In that yeah. interest rates affect everything sure. that we're talking about today. Sure. So it is interesting that, right, he was didn't really make a comment on interest rates at all. He did not. No, he did not. You reminded me of one of my other favorite quotes when Warren has said, we're not interested in anyone's predictions, including our own. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they are intrinsic value, discounted cash flow based investors. They are mm -hmm. not prognosticators. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that, that I revere and love about their approach. You know, Rob, I'm just looking over the rest of the letter. I think, you know, if I would encourage listeners to go pull this PDF. Like I said, the link will be in the show notes. A couple interesting sections on, on federal taxes. We don't have to get into that, although I do think it's interesting how much tax Berkshire Hathaway has paid over yes. the past decade. Yes. Uh, essentially one one-thousandth, I believe, of uh, all... Of all the federal taxes Federal paid. taxes yes. came from Berkshire Hathaway as that's a corporation. Right. And that's one of the reasons he really doesn't care to be called out for share repurchases. Uh, on, right, right. Though he didn't connect the dots between those two comments, they are clearly connected. Like, right. hey, we're paying way more than our fair share. Please don't villainize us for trying to concentrate our shareholders' value and do what's really just being a good steward for our shareholders right. by buying back our own stock. That's not villain behavior. It's just sound economic and investing behavior on behalf of people that entrusted their life right. savings to us. And, and I will say, as I read the section on taxes, Warren, I think, again, very intentionally omitted a remaining part of the argument, which is go ask this same question of the Amazons of the world. Right. How much federal tax have they paid over the past decade? Right. Compare that to what Berkshire Hathaway has paid. Right. Or, yeah. or, or you know, not to pick on Amazon, but they're one of many corporations that ought to be picked on when it comes to federal taxes. Well, right. Yeah. Berkshire doesn't have an Irish subsidiary that right, they're right. running their international sales through. Exactly. They're not storing huge amounts of international profits overseas in no or low income tax countries. They're paying their fair share. So as he likes to say, every Berkshire shareholder can say, I gave it the office. Exactly. When it comes to federal <laughs> income tax payments. And then I like also, there's a section, we won't get into details here, but there's a section of essentially bulletized quotes from Charlie. Yeah. Uh, he, he pulled some quotes from, it must've been a podcast that Charlie Munger on. It was not the best interest podcast. I will say that Charlie okay. Munger has not been on the best interest. We're working on Charlie, Yet. getting Yet. Charlie on the podcast here, but there's a really good list of quotes for people who like lists of little pithy quotes that I recommend folks read as well. Other than that, Rob, any other thoughts? Well, let's make sure if we have any interested investors or maybe even seasoned buffetologists that we get that email address for Becky Quick. It's the one that's specifically yeah. for questions at the annual shareholder meeting. And Jesse, I'm going to put you on the spot with the question. So Berkshire Hathaway has a very broad array of consumer products businesses. We've talked about, for example, American Express, Apple, and Coca-Cola, some of the large 
stocks they hold as well of all of the Berkshire wholly owned companies and equities that they own, what would you say would be your one favorite Berkshire Hathaway related product to consume just as a a human, just as a person? I've never actually had them, but it's on my to-do list. I've never had a C's candy. Oh. So Berkshire, right? You know, listeners might not know this, especially if you're in New York where yeah. C's candy doesn't really exist. Not but, so well known. But on the West Coast, C's candy is a very well-known brand of candy stores that's wholly owned by Berkshire. Wholly owned, yeah. So I got to think that C's candy has to be up there at the top. C's candy is absolutely fantastic. We've used it from our office as client gifts on a number of occasions around holiday time. I love it. That's a great answer. How about you? What what would be your favorite Berkshire product? Ooh, that's a tough one. So there are a lot of heavy contenders. C's candy would be high up there. Berkshire wholly owns Dairy Queen. Ooh. And since they did open up that location a number of years ago in Henrietta, for those in the Rochester, New York area where Jesse and I live, the cheese curds are fantastic. The blizzards are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the I do love their ice cream cakes as well. However, for me, the gold medal would have to go to Brooks Running Shoes, another wholly owned Berkshire Hathaway company. And the reason that I like Brooks running shoes are that more so than Dairy Queen and C's, they're really good for me when I use them. They're exceptionally durable. And particularly as a runner, that's, I don't want to date myself too much, but I'll say I'm well north of 40. (laughs) They treat my feet and my body very, very well. So I would say Brooks running shoes would take the gold medal as far as Berkshire related products, but there are many, many fine ones. Awesome. Rob, thank you for sitting down with us on the Best Interest Podcast. This has been fun, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.